Welcome to the Avocado Social Club, a podcast where we talk about things that come up in our everyday conversations, from politics to popular culture. I'm Natalia and I'm from Active City. And I'm Fraser and I'm from London. And we're both in London. We're both in London, <laughs> yes. Uh, so this is our second episode of the Mental Health series and we have a special guest joining us in a bit. But first we're going to do our little catch-up because we didn't do it last week. Yes, so we've been, as continued circumstances would have it, staying at home. Um, we have been enjoying the sun a little bit, kind of near the flat, just taking some nice walks and yeah. hanging out outside because it's obviously been good weather. And... We walked all the way to the river, which was lovely. Yeah, last weekend we took a walk around kind of the centre of London a yeah. little bit. And I think we actually felt for the first time this year like we were kind of on holiday in the sense yeah, of the sure. weather was good enough to feel like you were just not in the UK yeah uh, which is cool and we've also been doing some work on our clothing brand as well Mexi clothing so we had some samples sent over from a supplier we we're checking those out which is really cool mm-hmm. and hopefully those will be good we've also taken part in an initiative hashtag by Mexican on all social platforms which has been organised by Mexi Brit. Um, they're bringing together all different Mexican brands in the UK, uh, which, which is, is really cool. cool. So there's a lot of awesome like restaurants, food, mariachi that like you everything. can hire. It's really yeah. cool. You should go on their website actually yeah, if so you live in the UK and you're Mexican or not Mexican. Yeah, or not Mexican. You just maybe you want to find somewhere to buy good Mexican food or or anything. There's good presents and stuff. It's really Beer, really good. Yeah, fashion <laughs> from us Mexican if you like. Um, but yeah, that's been a fun thing to see happening this week. Yeah. And you've been, we'll go through, go through some of the usual, usual things you've been reading. I've been reading, um, I've read quite slowly in the last month, which is slightly frustrating, but you know, it's okay. I have been busy. (laughs) I read Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, which is, uh, shortlisted for the Women's Prize and very predicted to win. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. It's very lyrical and it's written... It's written beautifully. It's like one of those books that you finish and you go, well, that was that was really beautiful, just because of the way it's written. It's about Hamnet, who is Shakespeare's son. Well, was Shakespeare's son, obviously. And he died at the age of 11 uh, under quite mysterious circumstances. And the book is kind of... It's about how he died and it's fiction, because that made it sound like non-fiction. It is fiction. And a lot of it is almost, not quite, but almost magical realism. Okay. Where there's some magic involved and some... The way that Anne Hathaway, who's called Agnes Hathaway in the book, is depicted. She was Shakespeare's wife. It's so beautiful. And, yeah, I think I just... I really, really enjoyed it. And I felt a lot for that family. And it's very much a story about family. It's not necessarily... You don't see... Shakespeare writing his plays you you see the family and the core of the family and his wife and his kids and I just thought it was very beautiful yeah it's interesting and some of the stuff you've told me about it it's quite interesting to know a bit more about Shakespeare or at least imagine a bit more about it because yeah. it's obviously a fiction yeah because it's fiction. story but just to kind of understand a little bit more about the life and times in, in yeah. that era and then all the disclaimers are at the end of the uh, fictional liberties that Maggie O'Farrell okay. took so it's, it's still really really interesting and also after Hamlet died um, I think it was maybe a year later or something. It was quite soon after the play Hamlet was presented. And Hamlet and Hamnet at the time were the same name. So Okay, funny. Yeah, so the the take of Maggie O'Farrell on that is also 
I nearly cried a lot, but anyway, I thought it was beautiful. So a lot of artists have been releasing music lately. Mm-hmm. Lainey released a song last week called Good Guys. Yeah. I like that song. Haim released the song. Don't Wanna. Don't Wanna. I think that's my favourite of the new Haim songs. The For me, I think it's out. Summer Girl, but... Oh, that's we'll a good see. one. That came out last year, didn't it? Last yeah. summer, maybe. And then... That was, yeah, that's good. I mean, the album's coming out in June. Like June 29th, June, I think. So I think, yeah, so that'll be good. It's called Women in Music Part 3. <laughs> the, all the merch is really cool. Uh-huh. But, I yeah, know. I think everything to do with high school, so I'm yeah, not a big form of authority <laughs> on that. And Fox has finally released new music after... Like four or five years, uh, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, so Fox has released a new song called Love Not Loving You, which is an amazing pop tune. So yes, if you're looking for, for a new pop, that one's really good. yeah. And the 1975 released their fourth album, Notes on a Conditional Form. Yeah. They'd already released eight singles, but the album's 22 songs, so there's still a lot, a lot of new music. I found it a bit overwhelming when we listened to it. So yesterday we were trying to piece that together while listening to it and kind of... There's some real gems in there as well. Yeah, some good ones. There's some good ones. There's some... There's one that his dad wrote, which is very sweet. Yeah, his dad's vocal is on it as yeah. well, which is funny. Anyway. Um, but yeah, that's good. Definitely recommend checking out those songs during your the lockdown. week. Also, the 1975 album is, what, an hour and 20 minutes? So you can just put it's it on while you one. work yeah. and then you're I mean, fine. There's all kinds of types of music. There's some that are quite good for working because they're kind of instrumental. And there's and some that are like beat. clubbing yeah, songs. Yeah, it's funny. Anyway, uh, on to film and TV. We I've been rewatching The Haunting of Hill House and I just want to say that is a, an amazing show and if you for some reason haven't watched it yet, the second series, which is going to be a different story, it's like a horror anthology, uh, the second series comes out in October and I really recommend watching the first one, which is The Haunting of Hill House. Okay. Uh, the second one's called The Haunting of Bly Manor, so it's a completely different one, but I just think the writing in that show is insane, so watch it. I also watched another Netflix show called Never Have I Ever. She's got a sweet comedy, like sort of teenage comedy about a girl who likes a joke and it's kind of, is very, um, is very, you will have seen things like it before, but I thought it was very cute and mm. the way it treated family relationships and because the protagonist is Indian, a lot of the family relationships depicted are about Indian culture, which I found very interesting and... Is that I the one re- that John McEnroe is the yeah. narrator of? John McEnroe narrates it, which that's is very funny. very funny. Yeah. I laughed quite a lot while I watched it. I really enjoyed <laughs> it. So that's good. a good evening watch. Um, we also, I think, as mentioned a few weeks ago, we were watching The Assassination of Gianni Versace, American Crime Story, and we finished that. We enjoyed it overall. Don't think it was the best thing I've ever watched. No, o- um, the O.J. Simpson one is better. The O.J. Simpson, yes. Is that American Crime Story? American, American Crime Story? No, it's American it? Crime Story. American Crime Story, The People versus O.J. Simpson. Yeah, so that's the first series for American right. Crime Story, and this is the second one. Yeah, I mean, this one, I think there were some cool kind of fashion moments. There were very um, cool fashion moments, Not just yeah. Versace, but kind of in general. all the characters. You yeah, know, there's some good looks in there. Also, I really like the soundtrack. There was a lot of 80s and 90s yeah. fun. Well, mostly, I guess, early 90s. But yeah, fun fun music in there. Yeah, every time a song played, I was like, I love the music in this. Yeah, and then I put, I found on Apple Music, and you can find the same thing on Spotify. People have kind of assembled yeah. the soundtrack, which is quite fun. I think my favourite thing about it was uh, the acting. And I think Darren yes. Chris was incredible yeah, in he's it. Yeah, re- he's really good. Everyone was really good in it, but... Darren Chris kind of takes the show because yeah. it's, it's about his character. Yeah, so. and he's on it. 
you know, he, he is just mostly following him. him as the main character. Yeah, so that that's probably why he shines the most, but he's so good in it. Mm. So, yeah, that's it. We're going to go on with our guests now. Enjoy. So, as mentioned, we are continuing our mini-series on mental health, where we interview different experts about different mental health and mental illness issues. Um, last episode, we mentioned how we as a generation, we're becoming much more open about our mental health, um, but there's still quite a lot of stigmas attached, particularly mental illnesses as well. So today we're going to talk with um, Shannon Hilton about that. Who? So thank you, Shannon, for, for coming on. Uh, Shannon is a psychiatry trainee. She went to medical school at the University of Southampton, where she completed a a BMSI research project on the use of ibuprofen in anxiety. She completed her basic medical training in East London before starting as a psychiatry trainee in 2019 at the world-renowned Maudsley Hospital Trust. She's worked as an autism specialist in secondary school, has experience in older and working age adults, mental health, community psychiatry, and currently works at a male psychiatric intensive care unit. So a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I guess would be awesome, first of all, you know, if you could just talk about, I guess, your journey a little bit and like what interested you in mental health and mental illness sort of in the first place. Great, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, so thank you for that introduction. It's obviously a pleasure to chat to you guys. So I guess even when I was at school, um, I was studying psychology and I was really interested in the science behind how people think. Um, but I didn't want to go into university and pursue something that was a bit too abstract. I wanted it to be very linked to people. That's why I chose to do medical studies. So to kind of, I could have come out of that as any type of doctor, but the more I was studying it, the more I realized the things that I love about medicine is it's about working as a team with people with different experiences. Medicine isn't just about cells you can send under a microscope or what drugs treat what thing, but also considering a person as a whole in a real holistic way. Um, and seeing lots and lots of examples of how somebody's social background, how the way somebody thinks impacts on their physical health. And in no area does it do more than that than in mental health. And that's, I guess, why I've ended up doing psychiatry. Awesome. Yeah, super interesting. Makes, makes sense. Yeah. For sure, that's, that's really cool. I guess something we really want to delve into today is the stigmas around mental illness. And something that we want to start with is whether you had any stigmas in your mind that maybe you didn't even realise you had about mental illness before you start working with psychiatry and specifically with people with mental illnesses. Sure. So I guess as part of our training, we do a lot of um, on the job, like being an apprentice doctor. And that first going to the first psychiatric unit as a second year student when you've done you know, mostly book work up until that point it is nerve-wracking and you have this real sense of people are going to be screaming and yelling and it's going to be frightening and worrying um and maybe some of those things do play out and there are as a grain of truth in those stereotypes but generally it's not like that and i think even now you know i've moved to this psychiatric intensive care unit which sounds very scary um and it is for the most mentally unwell men in the area but even then yes things are sometimes chaotic um, but generally, it's not as worrying as people think. I also think with mental health, there's always an interaction between other things such as um, poverty, substance misuse, being maligned from society. So you do build up this picture in your mind of what somebody with mental illness maybe looks like, um, which isn't always a positive stereotype to have. And I think 
part of our training is just checking in that stereotypes are not okay to have, but just recognizing that you have those and thinking about ways you can overcome them is a real key part of our training kind of every day. Do you think that sometimes those stereotypes of things being chaotic, does that make it harder for the patients to accept in themselves that they have mental illness? For sure. Um, we have a whole spectrum of people that come onto the units and onto the wards. Sometimes people arrive and you can see on their face that this is really not what they were expecting and sometimes people discharge themselves within the hour. Um, I think for some people they hope that there's going to be you know, a great lawn and it's going to be very relaxing and lots of peaceful yoga and meditation and the reality is that people are really acutely unwell. Um, so for some people that's quite shocking and they go straight home for some people they work through that and actually it can be really useful to understand other people's stories and journeys and lots of the patients speak about how meeting other people with the same illnesses that they have is actually a really important part of their recovery and understanding who they are and what's going on for them hmm. that's interesting so where do you think the bit of an offbeat question but where do you think the patient's kind of ideas come from about what what they're going to go through like yeah do you think because do you think they're being kind of they have misconceptions about about it as well so i think definitely i think i mean you only have to look at the media and particularly you know films and novels and things that are coming out in the 80s and 90s where you've got one depiction of uh mental health units being like asylums people are screaming and nurses in white coats holding people down and then you also other things like a little bit in um, that Leonardo DiCaprio film Shutter Island where it's a big lawn and it's a beautiful house and people are having mm. nice little walks in the garden. And the reality is that it's not really either of those things. Yeah, yeah I think I was reading something very interesting. This I get a bit off beat, but I was reading about how people think that asylums are like that because before they used to look like prisons. So people think that that's still just what it's like when it's really not. So yeah, it's interesting. Mm. Yeah, going into a topic that's a little is very talked about in the UK, I think, which is sectioning. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us about sectioning, what it means for the person being sectioned, and just kind of what goes into that? Yeah. So when we talk about sectioning, um, what we mean is we mean detaining somebody against their will under a section of the Mental Health Act. Um, the Mental Health Act came into play in the nineteen eighties, and it was designed to protect patients who because of their mental illness, couldn't make the decision to come into hospital that was completely capacitous. And, you know, capacity is a whole other topic, but it's about being able to make a decision that you've come to on your own, free from pressure or illness or anything like that. So sometimes because of the nature of these conditions, particularly things like schizophrenia, where the most common symptom is actually loss of insight, you completely are disconnected from who you really are and the reality around you. People don't understand that they're unwell. They don't understand that they maybe need treatment, they don't feel like they've got a problem. But uh, professionals, and it's to section somebody, you need two doctors and a social worker, so it's never just one person doing it, come to a decision that actually this person needs some care and treatment for their mental illness, for them to be able to understand that you know they needed some help. And we always base it on risk. So we're either thinking about risk to the person themselves, and so maybe if they're um, threatening to harm themselves or threatening to commit suicide, or they're just neglecting themselves, or risk to others. So if somebody's illness means they're very worried, they're being attacked or followed, or they've, they're have they carrying a knife or something like that, we need to think about society and have a duty both to our patient and also to the bigger community. How long did they uh, remain in the hospital? So 
You normally come into hospital under section two, which lasts for up to 28 days, and that can be stopped at any point. And that's really about trying, the psychiatrist, the psychologist, the team trying to understand, is this a mental illness that needs treatment? Is this just this person's personality? What's going on? How can we help? And if that needs to be continued, they need to be in hospital for a bit longer, you can convert that to something called a section three, which runs for six months at a time and you can renew that, so that can renew indefinitely. Um, but again, that can be terminated at any time. Patients always have the right to appeal their section and they go to something called a tribunal. There's a judge, there's an independent doctor, patient represents themselves and also there's a solicitor present. So it's a way for patients to feel like they can protest if they feel that's unfair. There's another system where if something called your nearest relative, which is a little bit like next of kin, really strongly feels that you shouldn't be in hospital, their loved one doesn't need to be in hospital, they can also contest and have that section removed. Okay. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah. Because I think when you hear sectioning and when you hear about it, it's always with a very negative connotation of it's against their will. And mm -hmm. it's just interesting to know that it's seen very much in a case by case basis. Because what one misconception that I had was maybe it's just they say that person has schizophrenia, so they need to be sectioned. But it's just on the basis of their diagnosis. But if you have two doctors looking at it, it's always on a case-by-case -case basis. So that's, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And also you have plenty of people sectioning or having somebody come into hospital under section is always the absolute last resort. Mm. There are plenty of people that are either relapsing or becoming unwell for the first time that are dealt with by the community team and they're supported by a community team or an intensive care team who will see them once, maybe twice, maybe three times a day to avoid coming into hospital and to mm. do everything possible to keep somebody at home. Interesting. And, and something that else that we were, we were looking into that is kind of, I guess, it's on a, a bit of a related related mm -hmm. theme, I guess, um, is deinstitutionalization. And the, there was this concept that sort of emerged maybe in the 60s about kind of um, like a bit as a bit of a backlash to traditional kind of old fashioned like asylums type Places, ways, I yeah. guess. Um, so, yeah. Could you talk a bit about what that means? Because I think people maybe don't know necessarily kind of you know, what the difference is between like a psychiatric ward and like an institution and, yeah. and like just what kind of that split is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I guess the important thing to kind of bear in mind is that people have always suffered from schizophrenia, from bipolar, from major depressive disorder, right back from, you know, the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, those things still existed. Mm. They existed in medieval times, they existed in Victorian times, but we didn't have any treatment for them. And sometimes these people were so unwell, their families couldn't cope, they couldn't function in society, so they had to be housed somewhere. So the asylums grew up as a place of housing these people, keeping the, you know, the individuals, the patients safe, but also keeping their societies and communities safe as well. Yeah. Modern psychiatry didn't really take off until the 1950s with our first antipsychotics in uh, 1952, and then you don't get antidepressants for another 10 years after that. So even in the early half of the 20th century, Patients are still unwell, but we don't really have anything to treat them with. So you have a huge amount of people in asylums that stay there for a long, long time, maybe 10, 20, 30 years, maybe their whole life. And in the mid-century, people were looking at this and thinking, actually, is that the right place to care for somebody? Couldn't they be cared for in specialist, smaller units in the community? And that's where this idea of social care, of care in the community really springs up from. Mm. 
Um, so you have patients coming out of the asylums and into smaller, like a care home type system. And the thinking behind that was you can give people back a little bit of independence, you can deal with patients on a more one-to-one -one basis in a more like a family setting. Um, so deinstitutionalisation de was a real push to move away from huge asylums with thousands of patients into care in the community. Um, and that kind of goes hand in hand with better, more effective treatments that also enable people to come out of um, quite highly institutional settings. That's super interesting. And it's, it sounds like when something you mentioned earlier was this kind of contrast between um, sort of the way that the, these places are depicted, you know, psychiatric wards are, are depicted in films and stuff like that. And a lot of the depictions that I picture are kind of like the ones you described as sort of almost like the medieval, yeah. um, you know, institutions. And I guess that's funny how like that, at least in kind of art and media, to some extent is what you see and, and what you think of as a result, I guess. Yeah. And I think it's very interesting as well, how looking at the history of it, how they grew when there were things like the Industrial Revolution and they were even less people with mental disabilities and mental illnesses, they were even less kind of productive. So asylums grew even more and the idea of them being almost like children grew even more and like certain power over them. And it's, it's just very interesting to look at the entire history, history yeah. of it. And yeah, I mean, sorry. No, go, go sorry, ahead. I was going to say these, these, you know, the asylums, they weren't really like hospitals, like treatment facilities. It was just about containing someone. It was just like a massive care home. You didn't have any specialist treatment once people were there yeah it was just about moving them away from people, us yeah. yeah um yeah. and also when deinstitutionalization was first introduced it was about how mental illness mental illnesses can just be a construct into what we deem to be normal and abnormal and when we first talked about doing this episode you posed a question to me about how maybe mental illness is the same person's response to an insane society and I want you to elaborate on that a bit because that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, so you have in the 60s um, linked the idea of deinstitutionalization, these social psychiatrists. So they're medically trained doctors, they're psychiatrists, um, and they're anti psychiatrists. They think actually asylums, treating this as a mental disorder, calling this a mental illness, treating them with drugs is the wrong thing to do. Maybe we need to think about mental illness as actually we live in a crazy, corrupt world. And surely anybody who's sane and sensible and has logical, rational thought would find this overwhelming. And maybe that's the reason why we have symptoms and, and that's why people develop things like schizophrenia or bipolar or depression or something else, which is a very extreme view. I think it kind of takes away from the point that all medical conditions, every single diagnosis is not just about what happens in cells and chemicals, it's always an interaction between the body, the mind, what's going on in society, things like lung cancer, which only exist because of tobacco smoking. You can't detract the government policies and smoking and the social impact of smoking and how it was cool and fashionable in the 40s. You can't separate that from incidences of lung cancer. Um, and in the same way with mental illness, you can't separate out the biological predisposition to develop in these conditions from maybe the society you're living in in a small scale or also in a bigger scale, something like the UK or the US and the enormous changes that were going on. So the social psychiatrists had a very polarising view and they were really, um, really kind of forward thinking and pushing forward this idea of care in the community, which is the positive thing that's come out of all of that. And I think it, it challenges the whole um, 
just putting people away because they're different and they don't give us productivity and just thinking more about why is it our fault that this happens I don't know I think that's always a very interesting take yeah because it like ultimately it kind of leads to like politics and a lot of other sociology and kind of other disciplines I guess that when you start and I think it leads into people thinking that if you're mentally ill, you're probably a violent person. And I also wanted to ask you about that, because obviously you work closely with people who have mental illnesses that people believe to be violent. And what do you think are the biggest sort of misconceptions within that? So I mean, if you're taking that as a black and white statistic, um, like I said, I think lots of people have this idea that people with, who are mentally ill are more likely to commit crime, more likely to be violent. And actually, uh, people with mental illness are less likely to commit crimes or, you know, than any other group in society. They're more likely to be victims of crime, actually. Um, I think lots of the worry about people becoming unwell is this idea that they've become paranoid or they're psychotic. They hold beliefs that aren't true. And actually, a lot of that is born out of fear. So people don't act on these beliefs as the first thing to do. People are genuinely terrified of the things that are happening to them and it's really important to remember that for that individual however unbelievable their delusion sounds it's really real to them they completely believe they're being chased by the devil or um, the neighbors spying on them or their wife has been replaced by an imposter or something and they are terrified and it's out of that fear that these one-off violent events occur which is why things like the Mental Health Act exist, which is why we have community teams, which is why people with mental you know, illnesses who are concerned should go to A&E to see their GP, because the idea is that you're picking up the symptoms, the part where that person's really scared and fearful of what's going on before anything actually happens. And actually those incidences are really rare. So on a, simil- a, bit, of a, a bit of a similar note, um, there's also this, this connotation or this idea around psychiatric wards that people think of um electroconvulsive therapy and like i think that's the first image and that people ect think of. and people yeah people have this image i don't yeah i'm not sure like where it comes from and stuff like that but people have a kind of like scary perspective picture of on someone it. being yeah. electrocuted <laughs> yeah is is that something that that is is part of i mean I've i've read that it is part of treatment for some people but is that something that kind of you have knowledge of or you've and seen. also how does it actually work because I, i'm sure that if it's allowed now it's yeah on very specific occasions and yeah. how does it help how does it work like just how do we understand ect a bit better yeah i mean the the link between ect psychiatry and film particularly is just so enmeshed isn't it through yeah. you know yeah. lots of examples come to mind very quickly um and i think because ect is one of the longest serving psychiatry treatments that still is in existence. People kind of question, well, is it useful and how does it work and why are we using something from the mid 1800s? It does work. We do use it, but actually really uncommonly. So maybe, I don't know, on a a ward of 20 patients, you might have one patient that's undergoing ECT at any time. Um, There's certainly not huge amounts of people undergoing that treatment and you know, the guide, the government guidelines or the guidance that the institutes that tell psychiatrists or all types of doctors what treatments to offer in which order always put ECT as a kind of third or fourth line therapy. So you have to try other things first. Mm. When people are having ECT, sometimes it's under the Mental Health Act, but often not um, because 
there is a huge connotation around it. Family members are often very, very worried. Patients have a small anaesthetic, so they have a cannula in the back of the hand, a small needle in the back of the hand, and enough anaesthetic to make them drowsy, they fall asleep, they're not aware of what's going on, and there's some muscle relaxant. Um, the shock's delivered, it takes around 15 to 30 seconds, and the patient has a seizure, which is an indicator of a good um, response to treatment, and the patient wakes up within about a minute. So the whole thing takes maybe 15 minutes, um, and then afterwards people have a cup of tea and a biscuit and tend to go back to the ward. That usually as a treatment dose is only twice a week for six weeks, so 12 is an absolute maximum. Um, but some people find that it works so well for them, they, they continue even after they're well to have ECT maybe once a week, maybe once a fortnight or once a month in the community and they'll pop in from home on their way to go shopping or something like that to have their weekly ECT treatment. We don't know how it works. It's a little bit like having a seizure, as in we know that um, patients with epilepsy who also have de depression or severe catatonia or mania or something tend to get a bit better after they have seizures and that's probably how and why it works but that's as technical as it gets at the moment. Wow, that's <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And also interesting that it's such an old form of treatment as well. And I think people related to this image that we have of asylums where it's just in a terrifying room and it's like Shutter Island almost <laughs> and it's not that that's I mean, when you say they have a cup of tea and a biscuit, it sounds very different to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you think about um, in The Joker, when they show Harley Quinn having the ECT therapy and she's awake and it's awful, the patients aren't awake, they're asleep yeah. and their muscle yeah. relaxed. There's, you know, it's a bit like going in for a very minor operation, it takes five minutes, it's like having a tooth extracted or something. Mm. And is there a, does the patient, because obviously if the patient keeps going after the six weeks, it's kind of their decision. But is the first ECT the decision of the doctor or, is, or does the patient ask for it or talk about it or how does it, how does the decision to have ECT come, I suppose? So as much as possible, um, you would obviously want to discuss that with the patient. And if somebody's adamantly, so essentially, even if a patient's in dissection, they have to be able to get onto the table, accept the needle into the back of the hand, understand what's going on and be willing to have it. Yeah. Even if they don't have capacity for other aspects of the treatment, which is why they're still in hospital, it can in extreme circumstances be given against somebody's will, but that's very, very rare. And you need another two doctors to come in, more than the just two that have sectioned them originally, um, to come and make that decision. That's really quite unusual. Yeah. So often it's patients that have tried, you know, I've tried one thing, I've tried two things, I've tried three drugs, you know, what else is there we can do, Doctor? What else can we try? Yeah, so I think the last thing we've already touched on it quite a lot, which yeah. is around kind of the inaccuracies or the misconceptions in the way that mental illness is portrayed in the media. Um, I guess maybe the, the most interesting thing to, to talk about is how do you see that changing at the moment and going forward? Because we've talked quite a lot about the past. And, yeah. And, and or is it not happened? changing? I don't yeah. know. What do you... Yeah. I mean, it, it feels like the conversation around mental health um, over the last 10 years is something that's way more in the public eye. You've got royals talking about mental health, you've got lots of particularly around topics like men's suicide and men's mental health, really very common and frequent. Um, and then there's another part of that which is more to do with how to keep yourself mentally healthy. Um, so thinking about mindfulness or... Um, you know, talk about well-being and wellness and yoga and relaxation and talking to friends and that kind of thing. I think that's been really important, actually, for the conversation of psychiatry and its benefits going forward. 
there's still lots of work to do, I think, around severe mental illness. I don't recall seeing any charities for schizophrenia, for personality disorder. I don't recall seeing any celebrities talking about this or trying to raise money for it. And I think the more severe um, mental illnesses are still probably very strongly stigmatised and felt as separate to maybe things like stress, anxiety, depression. Mm. And we, there's some work to do to align the two, I think. Yeah. That's super interesting. I think that's why we chose to talk to you today about severe mental illness more than about depression or anxiety, which is very important, but people don't really talk about severe mental illness as if it's kind of this taboo. And if you look at, I don't know, I look at films like Joker, which came out last year, and it's kind it's just a lot of what you see in film is if someone has schizophrenia or um, a, men- a severe mental illness, they're probably just going to go around killing people. Like that's people in films yeah. and things use the illness to sort of justify their character being really violent. And that that is very uncomfortable, I feel. And that's why people don't talk about it. And yeah. Definitely. I mean, I'd love to see a film where a character has a psychotic episode and then goes on to live a normal life but that doesn't make great cinema yeah um, and, but that is the reality for most of my patients yeah that's good well, that's good interesting. thank you yeah that's, <laughs> that's really good to know yeah cool thank you so much it. yeah thanks so much for that. that was super super fascinating yeah and definitely learned we learned a lot reading about it but learned a lot during this conversation as well yeah this is really cool we welcome. will leave the articles that we read uh down below and also if anyone was uh, affected or touched or knows anyone that needs any help we will leave numbers in the episode notes as well also you can follow shannon at dr shannon 22 on twitter no shannon always posts interesting articles on there, yeah articles so. and and tweets so yeah go follow her thank you so much shannon Thanks, shannon you're very welcome So, I hope you enjoyed that. We really enjoyed that conversation. Thought yeah, it was, it was really interesting. interesting. Really interesting researching the topic as well. Yeah. And, yeah, I would love to get your feedback on it as well. That's it for, for this week. You can get in touch with us in, in a few different places. So, we have an email, theavocadosocialclub at gmail.com. I am on Instagram and Twitter as at underscore Natalia Alvin. And I'm at Fraser D. Bell. And you can follow us on Instagram at the Avocado Social Club, where we post lots of recommendations from our guests and from ourselves. And yeah. Yeah, the account's looking really cool. So we'd love your support on that. On that. Um, and yeah, and thank you for listening as well. Really appreciate it. If, uh, if you're new to the podcast, you can subscribe, of course, on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen. Acast. Acast and as well. If you do listen on Apple, please rate because it really helps the podcast go up in, in charts and, and for people to see it. Yes. So thank you so much. And again, you can follow our guest at Dr. Shannon 22 on Twitter. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye.